0: Uh, I was told by Rhonda Urizov that I needed to make an important announcement here before we begin, and that is that Tina Kadina's birthday is today. So if you see Tina, she's the person turning red there behind Jeff Dunbar. Uh, Be sure to greet her and wish her a happy birthday. All right. How's that, Rhonda? Does that help? All right. Figured if I was going to get in trouble, I was going to take you down with me. (laughs) But anyway, uh, we have been spending the past few months on Mount Sinai as Moses talked to God there and received from him all the instructions for building the tabernacle. And what you'll remember is that God's purposes in redeeming Israel from slavery was not simply just to get them out of slavery. Slavery that he had a purpose and a plan in mind that was bigger than that, that they would be his people and that he would be their God and they would dwell with him and he would dwell with them. And Moses spent 40 days up on the mountain getting all the elaborate and detailed instructions as to how uh, to enable God's great purpose in worship uh, to come about. And uh, like any good uh, movie that takes place out in the desert, You have a scene eventually that says, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And chapter 32 is, meanwhile, back at camp. Uh, You find out what is happening with the Israelites. Uh, And Exodus 32 uh, catches us all up on what's been happening while Moses is meeting with God. And so I'd like you to look with me at Exodus chapter 32. And as you're making your way there, I want to remind you of this verse from First Corinthians chapter ten verse eleven, which specifically references this incident here in Genesis thirty-two. I mean Exodus thirty-two. Uh, Paul writes the, these words. He says, "These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come." So, in other words, this chapter is not simply about what happened to the nation of Israel. It is about what happens in the present to God's people as they continue to follow him and as they abandon following him, as we'll see with Israel, to pursue their sin. That the same kinds of things happen uh, to us as well and in us as well. And there's a lot here for us uh, waiting for us to apply, and I hope I can do it justice. So, If you have your Bible there, Exodus chapter 32, look at the first six verses with me. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And if you look at these six verses, there's a lot of content that is there. What they offer to us is a devastating description of the downward spiral of sin and rebellion. And it begins, first of all, with discontentment and impatience. Moses has been gone a while. And they are getting anxious. They don't know what's happening. They... They are not quite sure what he's doing up there. I mean, what was what he doing? Is he dead up there? What's he doing? I mean, get on with it already. We're so, we're out here in the desert. You were supposed to be taking us to the promised land, and in case you haven't noticed, this is not it. We're out here in the yucky desert, and we are um, eating manna, which is great, but it's kind of monotonous. And uh, you know, we have the law of God now, so. Let's get on with it already, and besides that, you know, where are you? And all of a sudden, they are discontent, and discontentment always has this at its root. It always has doubting God's goodness at its root. It always says to itself, when you're discontent, what you're saying to yourself is, God isn't really good. If he were really good, he would have given me a different set of circumstances than the ones I'm in. And then discontentment, when it flowers with these people, what it flowers into is outright disobedience. I have trouble counting exactly how many ways the people of Israel sin in these six verses, but at a very minimum, there's flagrant disobedience here when they decide to make themselves an idol remember that the what the first commandment was it starts off with this preamble i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt and then the commandment is you shall have how many other gods zero all right very good you passed All right? Um, You shall have no other gods before me. And then the next one after that is... That you shall not make anything that looks like me, you think. Right? You shall not make for yourselves a graven image. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God... All of those at a minimum are present in this text as they proclaim a festival to the Lord while worshiping a golden calf idol that they have made for themselves. So discontentment all of a sudden goes to disobedience. And you might, you know, we've been on the mountain together so long, you know, looking at all this rules for the tabernacle, you might not remember this, but they got all ten of the Ten Commandments plus the entire book of the law before Moses made this most recent trip up the mountain. So did they know that what they were doing was wrong? Of course they knew. They absolutely knew. And in fact, they had had this big ceremony where God presented the law and Moses was mediating between the people and God, and they heard the law given by God, and they said, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. It's like three weeks later. And they're going, "Uh, make us some gods, because we need some. And they go to their spiritual leader and they demand God's, plural, who will go before us. The scriptures only record here that Aaron made the one. But they start emphasizing and using the plural, which indicates to me that they are on their way. That one is not going to be enough. They're going to need some additional ones. In addition to the Lord, and in addition to this golden calf, we're back on the the road to polytheism real quickly. And on top of that, um, once they're down that road pretty far, it leads to disregard and disrespect for God's chosen spiritual leaders. They no longer are willing to submit to the leaders that God has put over them. Instead, they're treating them with disrespect. Look what they say to Aaron. Up! Make us gods! In other words, off your duff, big guy. We got stuff to do. Right? That's real respectful. right? And then look at how they talked about Moses. As for this Moses fellow... Like he's some nobody who just showed up. Instead of the guy that God greatly used to take them through all of the plagues, through the Red Sea crossing, uh, to deliver the law to them, etc. It's like he's, like I say, some bum off the street. All of a sudden, they're no longer listening to Aaron. They're telling Aaron what to do, even though Aaron is the one whom God had appointed high priest. And all of a sudden... The one who is the mediator between them and God, Moses, is just some, in in their estimation, some random fellow who's been gone a while. And they're not looking to them or listening to them. All of a sudden, they are disregarding them and disrespecting them. And once we get into that, then you get into distortion of God's worship. You know, Moses is, a, Moses is a great leader, but Aaron is a weakling. He blows with the wind. And he can see which way the wind is blowing. And so he says, all right, you want gods? Fine. Bring me all your gold earrings, and I'll make you a god for you. I'll make a god for you. And they take out all their earrings. By the way, where did they get their earrings? From Egypt. Why did God make sure that they had all that jewelry and all that wealth? Well, for one thing, he wanted to be sure they got paid 400 years back wages for all the time they were in slavery. But in addition to that, he wanted to be sure they had all the precious metals and materials they would need for the building of the tabernacle for the worship of the one true God. And they're going to take a portion of it and devote it to the construction of an idol. And Aaron, on top of that, is going to use his talents, his God-given artistic ability, to make what God explicitly prohibits him from making, in the second commandment, a graven image. And what that is, is this. You take a piece of wood. Now think about this. Think about how sophisticated you have to be to make yourself an idol. You go out to the forest, you find yourself a tree. And you cut it down. And, of course, Isaiah says it this way. With part of it, he, he builds a fire and warms himself. And with part of it, he takes uh, and makes an idol. Right? And so you got to be a sophisticated, spiritually attuned fellow to be able to do this. Because you have to be able to distinguish firewood from God. Okay? But, anyway, you find the non-firewood portion of the log... Idiocy, right? Idiocy. And you carve it with a graving tool into the shape of this animal. And then you take the gold and you melt it together and you make a big sheet and you hammer it down over the, over the wooden form and you then carve the details in with what's called a graving tool, a graven image. Right? And then on top of that, Aaron, because he's trying, I think, and even though he's a weakling even though he is is a passive spiritual leader rather than a courageous one, he tries to make the best of a very bad situation and he produces this terribly distorted form of worship. He sets up this idol in front of the golden calf and what does he do? He says, tomorrow we're going to celebrate a festival to whom? Not to Baal or whoever it is they're worshiping, but to the Lord it's a distortion of worship and you know what happens when you get into your sin far enough what we start to do is you start to look for leaders who will shape what what god says to what you want to hear and then to produce worship that is similar to in some ways the worship of the true god but you've taxidermied the faith you know when you have taxidermy done i have some it's kind of cool You take the skin of that animal, and that's all that it is. Put in glass eyes into a styrofoam form, and you stretch the skin over that, and it looks kind of lifelike at its very best. But in reality, what is it? It's dead. There's no life to that thing. And you start participating then in false religion and constructing a god for yourself. And then it gets worse. That people all proclaim these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Remember the preamble to the law, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. But it's shifted now, cuz these are your gods. And we don't know what the god is they're worshiping exactly. It doesn't matter. It might be the apis bull who is regarded as the incarnation of Ptah, the creation god of Egypt. That's probably the most likely candidate. And all of a sudden they have exchanged the glory of the invisible god for images to ma- made to look like man and four-footed animals, Right? And they, as they begin to worship, they take burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Where did you hear instruction about that? In God's own covenant. And they do that, and in, they have fellowship offerings with this idol, and it says they ate and they drank, and they rose up to play. And the words that are used there have some overtones that are, Um, Sexual in nature, this is a euphemism, play, for what's really going on. This is play of the R and X-rated variety. And the people are running through the camp engaged in immorality in the worship of this idol that they made. And remember how I said that these things happened to them as examples And were written down as warnings for us. Because this is not simply what happened. This is what happens to us. Because idols come in all shapes and sizes. And the way that you start down the road to worshiping one is this. You start out with discontentment and impatience and a distrustful feeling that God's plans and God's purposes and his commands and his timing aren't really best for you and that you know what's best for you. And then that goes and that gives way to disobedience where you now decide to ignore God's word and go on and pursue by yourself whatever it is you've decided that you want. And then you begin to disregard and disrespect the spiritual leaders that God has put into your life who is there to do what God's Word says, which is teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness with the Word of God, right? And you got You don't want to listen to that person anymore. You want to get yourself some new leaders who are going to give you what you want. And then... Finally, you start to distort the worship of God and then you're into outright rebellion where you no longer care who God is or what He has said as long as I'm getting my desires. And it slides further, further, further away from God until He has to do something cataclysmic to bring about change. And idols, like I say, come in all shapes and sizes. They aren't all shaped like Israel's visible deity, their bull god they make. And sometimes they look like good things that we have made into ultimate things for which we're willing to sacrifice everything. And so you, it might be an idol that looks like another person and a relationship with him or her. Or it might look like approval or possessions, or status, or sex, or acceptance, power. But nevertheless, when we bow down to them and we give them everything important in our lives, we do that unless our hearts are changed. We are nevertheless worshiping in idolatry. And I could preach on that the rest of the day, but I'm not going to. So let's... uh, Let's read on. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Uh, If you look at this, there's this amazing conversation between God and Moses. And look at, if you look at how it starts off and how God talks about Israel, notice how he describes them. They are no longer my people, Israel, whom I brought up out of Egypt. Now he sticks them over on Moses' shoulders. And he says, hey, Moses, your people whom you brought up out of Egypt are running wild down there, Okay. It's like when a mother sees her boy acting up and she looks at her the kid's dad, her husband, and says, your son was a problem today, right? I want you to kill the boy, right? Uh, <laughs> and, right, yes, master, kill the boy, right? And, right, you do that, right? Well, they're having this amazing conversation because there's a certain arm's length distance now that, Israel's sin is introduced into their relationship with God. And so on top of that, look at what he says. Look at what he calls them. He's, remember they said, this fellow Moses? Look at how God refers to them. He says, this people. This people. There's a certain dismissive quality to the relationship that God has. And and finally, for the first time in the Old Testament, not for the last, but for the very first time, God calls them a stiff-necked people. And it's an agricultural term. Back in the day when you plowed with oxen, if you had an oxen that was stiff-necked, what that meant was is that he would not lower his head to accept the yoke. And that on top of that, if he did accept it, you could finally wrestle it on him. And what would happen is he would stay stiff-necked. He would fight that thing the the whole time it was on him. And it would literally wear sores around his neck, which wouldn't be there if he would relax and submit to the authority of his master. But he would literally hurt himself rather than submit. And God says, these people are stiff-necked. They're like an ox that will not submit to my rule over them. And he says, stand aside, Moses. Get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you. And I don't think, by the way, that's a bona fide offer. I think it's more like a parent who says to his kids, you know, they." it's like, I've told you 150 times this week to pick up your room. But I don't want you to worry about it anymore. I'll do it for you just as soon as I get the trash can out of the kitchen. What's what's that mom telling that kid? You better spring into action, boy, because if I do, you will not like the outcome. Right? Right? And I think God is saying the same thing to Moses. He is saying, Moses, I'm just about to take their life. You better do something. And so Moses does, and he begins to pray, and he prays this amazing prayer on behalf of his people. And he prays, first of all, look at how he prays. He starts, the titles he starts using, against your people. In other words, Let's remember who's really responsible here, God, and it isn't me. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with, with great power and a mighty hand. So, first of all, he appeals to the past history that God has with his people. No, no, not my people, your people. And on top of that, he appeals to God's reputation. He says, wait a minute. He says, if you kill them all, and I, I'm not disagreeing that you probably should. But if you do, what will that do to your reputation? The Egyptians will hear about it and they'll say, well, I guess their God isn't really good. He took them out into the mountains to kill them all. God, you can't... You've got to worry about your rep here, God. You can't do that. And then he appeals to God's covenant and his steadfast love for his people. He says, look, you not only promised these people you'd take them into the land... But if you don't remember that promise or don't want to, you've got to remember your promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that their descendants would go into the land. Your covenant and your character, you swore by your own self, are at stake here. You can't do that. And God doesn't. But Moses goes down and enacts God's judgment. Verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, and they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And Moses heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory, the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that they have brought that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, You know the people that they are set on evil, for they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Ridiculous. And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered round him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put on your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for service to the Lord, each, of, each one at the cost of his own son and his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, but now lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels should go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Now, when Aaron, I mean when Moses shows back up, it's like Elliot Ness and the Untouchables coming in to Al Capone's, you know, booze warehouse, right? I mean, he starts busting up the joint, and the party is over. He grabs hold of that golden calf and he burns it and grinds it up and sprinkles it on the water and he makes everybody drink it. And then he, he says, Look, if you want to engage in sin, We'll let you drink it all the way to the dregs. We'll let you taste how bitter this sin actually is. And then on top of that, he goes to Aaron. He calls him on the carpet and says, what about it, boy? Where where were you in all this? Where were you on that one, genius? And Aaron starts weaseling. He starts going, well, you know, Moses, I mean, you know, this is wicked people. And I mean, you know, I mean, Moses is expecting to find Aaron like strung up by his thumbs and, you know, beat bloody and whatever. There's nothing wrong with him. Because he was a weakling. He was passive when he should have been courageous. And he should have t- stood in the gap and told these people who wanted these golden gods where to get off. And if I perish, I perish. That's what the true prophet of God and the priest of God would have done. But he didn't do that. In fact, he comes up with the lamest story ever. When my kids were three years old, they knew how to lie better than this. And I didn't teach them. Okay? They go, well, you know, I ask people for all the earrings, you know, and they, I threw it in the fire and all came the calf. I don't know what happened. Stupid. Just idiocy, right? No one could be that stupid. And yet that's what he tells his big brother. Really? Well, that's great, Aaron. Thanks. Okay? So then he has to go out and enact God's judgment against the people who are involved in idolatry. And he he, he issues a call and says, anyone who is for the Lord, who is not willing to go down the road to idolatry, come to me. And he tells them, You go through the camp and you kill every idol worshiper you find. If it's your brother, your neighbor, your friend, your son, you kill him and put him to death. That God's wrath might not fall on the entire nation. And that day, the Levites became ministers alongside the priests and supporting the priests. Because they were more concerned with the holiness of God than they were even with their own family. And it's a terrible cost that they receive God's blessing in that way. 3,000 people die. 3,000 people in one day. More people than died on 9-11 in an afternoon get killed by their brothers and neighbors and fathers and friends. Because the sin of the people is serious and God is not done. He and Moses have another conversation and Moses prays this magnificent prayer of intercession. He prays like every righteous leader of God's people prays which is, God, take me, not them. So when the people of Israel are suffering uh, during the time of King David, David prays, let the judgment of God fall on me and not on them. When, Je- when Jesus prays from the cross, Father, they forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He, when he intervenes in the garden of Gethsemane, For his disciples, he says, Father, he says to those who are coming to take him, take me, but let these go. When Paul prays for the nation of Israel, he says that, oh, that God would blot me out of his book, that he might write the nation of Israel, my brothers according to the flesh, into it. And that's Moses' prayer. He says, God, if you've got to put someone to death, put me to death and let these go. And God says, no, we're going to have justice. And those who sin against me will be blotted out of my book. And I'm only going to judge the wicked. And I'm going to send my angel with you, Moses, and the people to the promised land. And then a plague comes on all those who were engaged in sin. Let me ask you some questions at this point. Did God forgive his people? Yes. Were they still judged for their sin? Yes. And the aftermath of this particular sin is long lasting. Next week we'll look at Moses as he continues to intercede. Chapter 33, he's got this long conversation with God back on the mountain. And God agrees to once again lead them himself personally into the land. But did that bring back those 3,000 who died? No. And it didn't immediately heal those who were afflicted by the plague either. And sometimes the consequences of sin are not eliminated simply because we confess and receive forgiveness. Sin has deadly, long-lasting consequences. And God can bless and heal and forgive, and bind up, and so forth. Nevertheless, sin is deadly, dangerous stuff. And it has long-lasting consequences far beyond the incident. And here's the point of all this. This whole message, here's the point. That if you substitute, not many of us are tempted to, you know, dig up some books on Egyptian mythology, Make ourselves a little statue of the Apis bull and, you know, burn incense and offer sacrifice and dance around naked in front of it. And it's just really, I mean, it's not an, not an idea that occurs to me anyway, um, and, and probably not to you either. And if it started to occur, the guys in white coats would probably come for you. Right? But here's the deal. Many of us are tempted to substitute a lot of other things in place of God. And anything, even a good thing, that you sacrifice everything to obtain is an idol. It's an idol. And it will destroy your life. And if you walk the broad road towards sin, you will sooner or later sit up to a banquet of consequences you have set for yourself. And it will not taste very good. But thanks be to God. We have a better mediator than Moses. Amen. And our mediator did this. He went to God and, and said and made this arrangement. He said, I will offer my life. You can I will die in their place that sinners and rebels might be forgiven. And might be written into your book instead of blotted out of it. How about it? And where God rejected that offer with Moses, with Jesus, he accepted it. And our sin was so serious that the Son of God was the only acceptable sacrifice. It was the only way that we could be forgiven and be at peace with God and have our names written in the book of life. And I think sometimes we forget that. We think that sin is really not that serious. It's really not that big of a deal. It's really not that much of a problem. But here's reality. Reality is Christ had to die for you and me to not be blotted out of God's book. And so let me just conclude with these words from the Apostle Peter. He said this, You have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans do. Time already past is sufficient for you to plunge yourselves into the same flood of dissipation as everybody else. This passage is about the holiness of God and his wrath and judgment against sin. Thanks th- thanks to God that our his wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of on me. But at the same time sin is very 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 deadly. And it will if you bow down to it take your life. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray You would set us free from idolatry, that having delivered us from slavery to sin and death, taken us out of Egypt, so to speak, that we would not long to return there. That we would continue in Your grace, pursuing Your worship in according to Your Word. Because, Father, You have saved us for Yourself and to bring You glory. And we pray that our lives would do so In Jesus' name and by your Spirit's power, amen.